If you'd open your Bibles now with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 60, Psalm 60. We've been taking a few weeks to uh, be back in the Psalms. I think this will be our last Sunday. I think next week we'll be picking up the book of Galatians, Lord willing. Uh, but uh, we've, the, we've been uh, looking at David as he's been uh, writing these Psalms out of a time of uh, oppression as Saul was seeking to take his life. Well, this, this morning, uh, the Psalm is, is written when David is king and um, leading God's people and leading them in battle and experiencing um, difficulties in that. And so Psalm 60, let's trust that God has a good word for us today. If you notice the title, it's a lengthy title, I think the longest in the Psalms. And the title reads, To the choir master, according to Shushan Eduth, a miktam of David, for instruction. When he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You've made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. O oh, God in heaven, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out from the mouth of God and written by the hands of men in particular circumstances and times, and yet, Lord, all pointing to your glory, your goodness, our need, and ultimately toward Jesus, your answer to our need. And so, Lord, today, teach us and correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness today, and we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is taken from the last verse of Psalm 60, With God... We shall do valiantly. Valiant is not a word I would suspect that most of you tend to associate with your own life. If people would ask uh, you to describe yourself in one word, I, I doubt many of you would say valiant. Um, it just doesn't really seem to fit right with the life that we actually lead. And it's a very lofty word. Uh, synonyms are words like brave and heroic and noble and gallant. It's not how we tend to think of ourselves. We, we tend to think of ourselves actually uh, with the antonyms 
The words that, that are the opposite of valiant. Words like timid and nervous and anxious, fearful. I think that often right, describes our life more accurately. We're, we're afraid, and so we don't talk to people about Jesus. We're afraid of being mocked. We're nervous about um, not knowing enough. We're nervous about uh, our, the future. We're, we're afraid of what might come. We're, we're anxious about our present, what we're currently facing. We worry about uh, all sorts of things, our children, our, our relationships, our jobs, our health. And yet here we have a promise a confident assertion that we, you and I, shall do valiantly. That valor will be the epitaph ultimately written over our life. I hope that sounds like good news to you today. It's an amazing thing to think of. But how could it possibly be true? Well, let's look at Psalm 60. As I said, it's a psalm written when David is king over Israel and he's engaged in battle with Israel's enemies. We need to remember that Israel as a nation is a very small little nation and it is surrounded on every side by enemies that um, diligently desired its destruction. We don't really know what that feels like, right? Here in the United States, we're a superpower. We're surrounded by Mexico and Canada, which are generally considered allies, or at the very least, not a threat, um, unless maybe it's in hockey. But other than that, uh, we, we, don't, we just don't have this sense that there is constant danger on our borders. And the country is so vast. Israel is not uh, vast at all. And nearly everywhere it looks, um, there are enemies who daily are seeking and writing up plans, how can we destroy Israel? It's a hated nation. Boys and girls, it'd be like going to school and, and everyone on the playground uh, wanting to beat you up. Right? Not a happy existence. Well, from the title, we know that the psalm is written on the occasion of one particular military campaign. David is, is a far away from Israel. He's way up by the Euphrates River up in Iraq. You don't often think of David uh, extending that far in his military campaigns, but he's over 600 miles from home as he's fighting against the Assyrians. Well, the Edomites, right next door to Israel on the eastern border, decided to take advantage of this opportunity of David's absence. The army and David are up north, and so Edom attacks. And uh, the attack apparently was initially a success. Israel was in real jeopardy. Lives had been lost. Uh, David sent Joab back with a portion of the army, and Joab was able to defeat the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. But this psalm seems to have been written when David first hears the news. When um, David is experiencing the trauma of the setback. That the Edomites have attacked and David and his army are far, far away. Well, the Christian life is very much like the experience of David that we read about here. We also are surrounded by spiritual adversaries. We actually are. The world and the flesh and the devil actually do constantly seek to do us harm. The devil, the devil never takes a day off. Neither does your flesh. And we are uh, so engaged in this spiritual battle and commanded to fight this spiritual battle. And in that conflict, we are going to experience devastating setbacks. We really will. 
We will experience the shameful weakness of our own flesh in humiliating and, and painful ways. We will experience the tremendous power of evil in the world as people uh, do things and, and respond to us in, in, in ways driven by evil. We will experience the devastating impact of sin in our homes, in the lives of those we love, in our relationships. We will see people we love make foolish, foolish, devastating choices. Those are the setbacks that we will face in this battle. <clears throat> and Psalm 60 has great lessons for us. There are three things that... Um, David does that we need to learn to do in the context of our battle. That is look, listen, and lean. Look, listen, and lean. Notice with me first how David looks to the Lord. In the context of this setback, the trauma of uh, the danger that he finds is Israel is suddenly in. David looks to the Lord first to interpret the circumstance and secondly to look for help. First, then, to interpret his circumstance. Uh, David is battling with the Assyrians and the Edomites and the Moabites and whoever else wants to pile on in this uh, time of opportunity. But the horizon of David's mind is not consumed with his enemies and what they're doing. The horizon of David's mind is taken up with the reality of God and what God is doing. So when David begins this psalm, he doesn't say, Oh God, the Edomites are doing this, and the Moabites are doing this, and the Assyrians are doing this, and other people are doing this. As he begins his prayer, it's, Oh God, you have, and you are. His mind is focused on God. God, you have rejected us. You have been angry. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that makes, made us stagger. As David faces the, the conflict and the, and the setback, he's not focused on the circumstances themselves. He's focused on his God. Uh, he's just applying his theology. Right? David believes that God is the God of all the earth. All the nations around him have their gods, but David believes that the God of Israel is the actual and true God, and being God, he actually and truly rules over all of his creation. David believes there's not a, a random molecule in the universe, though he does not know what a molecule is. He understands that what is happening to him and to Israel at this time is happening by the hand of God. And that's why he describes it. He's not, he's not charging God with wrong. He's just explaining what, how he understands the circumstance. He believes in the providence of God, that, that we don't live in a world of accidental forces and random events. We don't live in a world where, where evil is on a free it's free just to run as it likes. It's not on the loose. Right? Everything is in the hand of God, even hard things. So Kidner writes this, David sees the chaotic picture, there's chaos all over the place, in principle as intelligible and under a single ultimate control. That is a great word. It's a great reminder to us. Sin is chaos. By definition, it's the breaking down and disintegration of things by per, on purpose. 
Okay? So as we look at the world in which we live today, isn't that exactly what we see? Don't we see disintegration, confusion, chaos? We see institutions quaking. We see society in, in ways un, unraveling, and, and unraveling in ways we wouldn't have imagined. And it, and it looks to us utterly out of control, just totally bewildering, unbelievably and irremediably messed up, and it's hard to know where to begin to address it. Well, we should begin where David begins. Begin with God. Instead of focusing on what people are doing and people are saying, let's step back and ask the question, what is God doing? What does God say? Because every event, friends, in our life and in our nation, in our world, every event is ruled and governed by the hand of a sovereign God. We are not deists. We do not believe that God just kind of spun it up and stepped aside. He's ruling and ordaining. So that means that today, God is up to something. When you see the foundations shaking, God is on the move. God is doing something. What is he doing? Well, that's the question on David's mind. And so so rather, you see, than try to puzzle the impenetrable mystery of evil, David sets himself to consider the purposes of God. What might God be doing in a pandemic? What might God be doing in social unrest? What's God doing? Well, as David looks at his context, he says, I believe God is chastening his people, that God is disciplining those he loves. God, you're angry because of some sin. Now, um, that's not the only reason for trouble, right? As we, as we studied the book of Job, we realized that, that there can be trouble that, that God brings into our life, and it is not chastening. It's not because of some sin we've committed. Job didn't, uh, Job didn't sin. And yet, there are examples in the Bible that, prove, that clearly prove to us that God does chasten his people. Maybe the classic example is Israel um, coming into the land of Canaan. Uh, they've just had this tremendous victory at Jericho, which, uh, where God conquered the city. And now Israel is going to go, and they're going to fight little Ai. This little uh, podunk place, uh, it's an easy victory. And yet, Israel is routed and thousands die. Why? Because they had sinned. Someone had, had explicitly violated the clear command of God. You don't take anything from Jericho for your own. It all belongs to me. Yet uh, Achan stole something from the city, something that belonged to God, hid it in his tent, and thousands of people died. God is a holy God. God does chasten his people. He, he disciplines those he loves. And David is convinced that's what's taking place here. And he's probably correct. Israel was in, a, uh, it was in shambles when David becomes king. Saul's leadership has led to um, just brokenness and sin and wickedness throughout the land. Uh, and, and the results were everywhere. There, so David says the land is quaking. There's, you're shaking things up. Society is breaking down. And David points to God and says, God, you're doing this. You're doing this. 
You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. People are out of their spiritual mind in Israel. They're like, it's like they're drunk. They can't think clearly. They do stupid, foolish, harmful, and wicked things under the influence of that spiritual drunkenness. And David says, God, you've, you've done this. You've given us over to our sin. And so David looks to God to interpret the context. Christians, we cannot be like the rest of the world, frantically looking around trying to figure things out in our own little mind and and allowing the the circumstances and the news uh, things that you read to just fill you with bitterness or with fear, with uh, resentment. That's how the world responds. Let's look to God to interpret what is God doing. And interpret, and in that sense, when we do that, you say we're reminding ourselves this is not out of control. It's not out of God's control. God's sovereign good purposes are continuing on. There is a benevolent being, a holy, righteous God, who is ordering the events of our life. That's really good news. Even though there's hard things in it. But you see, it's precisely... Because God is the, the uh, sovereign or ordaining agent in human history and in the circumstances of our life, precisely because this is the story that he is writing, there is hope. There is hope, and, and that's where David goes secondly, to find help. He looks to, look to God to find help. Oh, restore us. You see, the God who's, who's bringing the affliction is the God who can also restore He has that power. And David lays hold on the power and the willingness of God in verses 4 and 5. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. See, the glorious uh, thing about God's discipline If he is lovingly disciplining you, the wonderful thing is that it is always for your good and there's always a place of safety in it. It's the safest place to be. So David says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you. On the battlefield, a banner would be raised, a flag of some sort, some symbol, so that in the chaos of the battlefield, Uh, soldiers could look up and and see that there's a rallying point. There's a place to go, and you're being called to go to that place. Either it's a place of military advantage, or it would be a place of shelter from the attack of the enemy. And so the banner would be raised, and people would go there. Well, Well, here, it's a place of shelter. David says it's a place to flee from the bow, the attacks of the enemy. This is a place where God's beloved ones may be delivered. If you're in the middle of a battle, that's really good news. You're not on your own. It's not up to you. You don't have to just keep flailing away the best you can. There's a place to go. A banner has been raised. Well, what is the banner? The banner, friends, is the infinite and steadfast love of God. It's a banner for his beloved ones. Kidner points out that the Hebrew word used here belongs to the language of love poetry. It appeals to the strongest of bonds, the most ardent relationship. 
This is exactly what you read in the Song of Solomon 2 verse 4 that uh, the bride speaking of her beloved says he led me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. David is confident that God has raised a banner for sinful Israel and the banner is love. That though God has disciplined them, he's not cast them off. He's not done with them. He's at work in them. He is a God of steadfast love. And that Israel, though they have sinned, can flee to that banner and find safety and shelter there. Though they have sinned, it's a lesson we need to learn. How often isn't it true that when you sin grievously, the devil will tell you, go run and hide. Or try to make this, make this better. Try to fix it. Don't go to God now. You got to clean this up. You got you to somehow um, make things right. Well, that's completely backwards and will be devastating to your spirit. God has raised a banner for sinners. And that conviction... God has raised a banner of love, emboldens David, then to pray with expectancy, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. That's a really bold prayer. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. That's a bold prayer for sinful people. But sinners have a warrant for boldness in the love of a saving God who has raised his banner in the world and invites sinners to come. So David first looks to the Lord to interpret the circumstances and to look for help. Secondly, David listens to the Lord. In verses 6 through 8, David listens as God speaks. God describes, first, his sovereign rule over Israel. So when he says Shechem and Sukkoth and Gilead and Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah, these are all places and tribes of Israel. And God says, it's all mine. He's the God of Israel. It all belongs to him. He he is sovereignly in control of all of it. No matter what the Edomites might be doing right now, God is the God of Israel. David can trust Israel to God. But God is not just the God of Israel. God is God over David's enemies. And so God names them Moab and Edom and Philistia. They also belong to God as, as lowly servants accomplishing God's sovereign and saving purposes. So he says, Moab is, is my wash basin. Well, uh, a wash basin is one of the lowliest instruments in a household. It's where there would be water for, to wash your feet. And servants would use the wash basin to wash feet. It's, it's very, very lowly service. The same reference is Edom. Um, I cast my shoe. When, when the master walks in the house, um, flip flip and that's to the servant you take care of it it's the lowliest menial service which is Jesus right picks up on this in John 13 when he takes the wash basin and he washes the feet of the disciples so so God is telling David um, these great enemies you're facing they're actually just lowly servants they're they're doing my, my will they're accomplishing my purposes That's an incredible word of encouragement for King David. Though Israel is in disrepair, God still claims her as his precious and beloved bride. And though Edom and Moab and Assyria are rising up mightily against him, they're just God's lowly servants accomplishing his will. 
Now, the very same things are true for the church today. The great enemies of our soul are under the feet of our God, right? He, he sovereignly rules over even our sinful flesh and over the devil and over the world. But the, the great necessity then in the conflict, the great necessity in our time of temptation, the, the critical need in the times of our doubt and despair is to listen to God. Listen to what God says. When the enemies of our soul seem too great and our weakness seems to be too much for the grace of God, we need to listen to what God says. Listen, listen, listen. So here's Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. God's saying, listen up. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God says that to us. I give Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You are precious in my eyes and honored and God loves you. Are you willing to listen? Just be still and listen to what God actually says. He means us to listen. He means us to believe. Why would we argue with him? Or why would we, we just assume that that's not for us? Why would, we just, why would we hear it and then let it bounce off and we get back to our self-salvation project? God means us to listen to what he says. And then listening and hearing and believing that he, all that he says, you are precious, you are mine, I have redeemed you, I will be with you, I love you. Then we can engage in the battle. You see, the psalm ends, David is still fighting. Verse 9 shows us that. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? And this is where David leans on the Lord. Uh, the salvation, vain is the salvation of man. So when David talks about a fortified city, it's almost certainly a reference to Petra, the capital city of Edom. It was a city carved in rock. You can go there today. Uh, it, was, it was just considered impenetrable. There's only one little narrow path that leads up into the city, easily defended by a force of maybe 10 men. You simply could not get up into Petra. David recognizes that as he's fighting with Edom, he's going to have to take Petra, and how's he? he can't do it. He doesn't have the military ability to do it. So who's going to lead him there? Well, actually, what God does is he leads the Edomites into the Valley of Salt, and Joab destroys them there. God knows what he's about. But David is, is, is looking to the Lord here. Who's going to lead me to the fortified city? Only God would be able to accomplish a victory like this. And the, the lingering question in David's heart is, but will he? Notice verse 10. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. There's a struggle of faith here. It's a conflict between what, what 
David knows to be true. God is a God of, of, of love, but God's also a God of holiness. So Israel, you know, Israel's need is real, but Israel's sin is real. And God's holiness is real. And can David actually trust that God will deliver them? Isn't that the question you've asked? You know your sin. It's real sin. It's a true offense against a holy God. It actually bears the weight of guilt that makes you deserving of God's judgment. That's actually true. They're not similes or metaphors. So can you, can you believe that, that a, a holy God will actually be with you so that you're safe no matter what? That you'll be delivered? Yes, you can. Under the banner of God's love, the promise of God's love, as David has listened to the Lord, David is able to believe and pray with boldness. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. That's a believer's prayer. God, grant me help against my foe. Vain is the salvation of man. No counselor, no teacher, no preacher, no, no parent, um, no wise person can help me. I can't help me. I cannot save myself. And no one that I know can save me. There's no guru that can deliver me. This project of saving my soul from everlasting death, this project of, of keeping me in, in the care of God is only possible by the power of God. But God help, right? Grant me uh, your help when I'm in the time of temptation, uh, in my time of trouble and fear and doubt. There's no help for me in the world of men. Thou must save and thou alone. That's where we are. Every day. And that's our prayer. But... That prayer rests on the assurance of victory. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. David lays hold of God, leans on God. With God, with God, we shall do valiantly. If the living God of heaven and earth is actually and truly with us, well, then there's nothing to fear. And everything to hope, right? If the living God of heaven and earth is actually with us, our foes don't stand a chance. Greater is he who is with us than those who are with them. God, our God, who's with us, will tread down all of our foes. All we need to know then, friends, all we need to know and be convinced of for joy and peace and confidence in the, whatever the circumstances of our life might be, all we need to know is that God is truly with us. Well, how can you absolutely know that to be true? How can you be utterly convinced and certain that that's a fact? Well, have you ever heard of Emmanuel? Isaiah prophesied it. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. It's what his name means. 
It defines who he is. Jesus is actually God with us. God for us. Jesus, you see, is the banner that God has lifted over the battlefield of our lives and over the sinful world. All we need to do is run to him. And Jesus calls you and invites you to do exactly that. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the banner. And then in Jesus, by faith in Jesus and be united to Jesus, you see, we shall do valiantly. He has already tread down our foes, right? The devil is a, is a beaten enemy. The world is a conquered foe. The flesh has already been nailed to the cross in the flesh of Jesus Christ. So we're not under its bondage any longer. And because of his great victory, we shall do valiantly. We will overcome. As we read Revelation chapter 12, that beautiful verse that they, they overcame the evil, the devil. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By the saving work of Jesus Christ and their faith in Him. And that's how we fight. We fight this fight of faith with tears, with wounds, but with success. Even heroic success. As we fight looking to Jesus, listening to Jesus, and leaning on the power of Jesus. Friends, God wants us to have a vision in our mind of our destiny and identity in Jesus. The Father wants you to see yourself as you truly are in Christ, robed with valor and honor and glory in the presence of God. That is your destiny. And the way we get there is by looking and listening and leaning. No matter what trial or circumstance you're in today, you've got two options. You can fight in the strength of your own flesh, your own intellect, your own mind. You can do that. And you can, you can uh, just give yourself to the bitterness or the pride, depends how the, you think the battle's going. You can do that. You can just keep flailing away, wondering why God doesn't show up. We, we do that all the time. Or we can stop and look to God and ask God, what are you doing in my life right now? And then we can open his word and we can listen. God, what do you have to say to me in my context today? What do, you, what do you want me to know? Lord, let me hear your voice. Let me listen. And then we get on our knees and we pray and we lean on this God. And we ask God to help us because we don't have any strength of our own. We ask God to show us Jesus and all of his perfection and all that he's accomplished and, and to remind us of his love. This is how we fight the fight. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. 
Listen to Jesus. Isn't that what God the Father said? God the Father spoke twice during Jesus' earthly ministry. Once when Jesus was baptized, once when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said the same thing both times. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And then lean on him. Actually take Jesus for yourself. Friend, this is a gospel for people like you and me. Weak people, sinful people, foolish people. Whether you've never come to Christ before or whether you've been in Christ as, as long as you can remember, this is a gospel for you. So take it, receive it, walk in it, and you shall do valiantly. Our Lord promises it. Amen. Oh, Father, we need a gospel like this for we have spent enough time doing foolishly. And we want, oh God, we hunger to do valiantly. We want to live by faith. We want to live in the strength that God provides. We want to walk in love and joy and peace. We want to honor you. We want to bless others. We want to be made more and more in the image and likeness of Christ. And yet, Lord, our, the flesh and the devil and the world conspire against us, and we are weak. And our faith is shot through with unbelief. But, oh God, I thank you for this strong word that you speak to us today. Lord, maybe some of us are being disciplined today by the hand of God. And our life is a mess because we've turned and gone our own way. And you are chasing us, and I thank you for that. It is, a, it is a chastening in love, and I pray, Lord, that today we could interpret our circumstances rightly and that we would see the banner that you've raised over our life in Jesus Christ, calling us to repent and to come and to be restored. And, Lord, maybe we're just in a time of fear and grief and doubt. And our sins of the past rise up against us, and we... We just see all the troubles and all the hurt around us and we're discouraged and disheartened. Oh God, I pray that today we would see the banner that you've raised over us and that we would hear all that you have to say to us that, that we belong to you and that you love us, that you are with us. Lord, I, I just pray today for every person hearing this message. Lord, for those who are unconverted, I pray that they could see the great danger they are in apart from this banner that you've raised up. I pray, Lord, that for those who are proud and self-reliant, we would realize vain is the salvation of man, including our own. We cannot save ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would draw us then to Jesus, our beautiful Savior, the one who was lifted up on a cross to be a banner of love over us, the Jesus who became all of our sins so that we might be robed in his righteousness. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us a heart to listen to him, to listen to his commands, to embrace them and and to walk in them. I pray, Lord, that we would lean into all of his promises and that our lives would be transformed then as we continue in every, every day we live. Look to Jesus and listen to Jesus and lean upon Jesus in the confidence, O oh God, that in that way we shall do valiantly and we shall overcome because God is with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
We're going to sing a song that the boys and girls know well, uh, but it is not a, kid, a children's hymn. It is a, the hymn of the saints. Um, Through our God we shall do valiantly. It is he who gives the victory. Let's stand together and rejoice in this gospel, the victory song. <laughs>